art has become crucial to people voicing their opinions in these times when there are a lot of things that are being exposed that have been underlying problems for a very long time. Living as a responsible citizen in the world, not just in the U.S., um, means evolving and always learning. Is it simply enough to share these stories and create whatever empathy you can in the individuals in the audience? Um, how are we as individuals in the theater-going community taking meaningful steps, not only to recognize those differences, but then to take steps to rectify the damage that has been done from centuries ago? Um, so do we have a responsibility in the arts to address societal inequities? Absolutely. So it's not enough for us to just be aware of the diversity um, of human experiences um, and conditions, um, but to actively um, push back on the oppressive systems that have created those conditions. Um, and in my experience, there's no better source of liberation than through the arts. Episode 3. Welcome to the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast, a podcast for activists, advocates, and allies working to make our communities equitable through artistry. Each episode, I am joined in conversation by an artist or arts facilitator who has been paving the way in hopes of learning from their expertise and experience. Through action and unity, we can create a better tomorrow today. Let's go. Today, we are joined by two very special art facilitators who also happen to be friends and colleagues. Annie Lin is the Associate Director of Arts Programs at the Yale China Association, an organization which bridges American and Chinese cultures by creating lasting, transformative partnerships and experiences in education, health, and the arts. Annie identifies new collaborative and interdisciplinary work in the arts in China and the United States. In addition to exploring new methods of cross-disciplinary and intercultural exchanges, Annie manages the Yale China Arts Fellowship, public programs in the arts, such as the Art Exhibit Series and Lunar Fest, and special exchange programs. Annie was a Yale China Fellow based in Xionying, Anhui. Previously, Annie worked at the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival, Performing Arts Center at Cal Poly University, and San Luis Obispo Symphony. Annie graduated from Yale with a BA in Music. Annie is a Fellow of Ezra Stiles College and the Community Leadership Program, and is from Morrow Bay, California. Emily Chu is the Senior Program Officer for Education and Arts at the Yale China Association. Before joining Yale China, Emily completed a year of service in New York City through AmeriCorps, mentoring and tutoring middle school students. Previously, Emily participated in the Chinese flagship language program and completed her capstone year in China, including an internship at an LGBT nonprofit in Beijing. Emily graduated from the Croft Institute for International Studies at the University of Mississippi with a degree in International Studies and a focus on social and cultural identity. A warm welcome to both of you, and I'm so happy to be chatting with you today. Thanks, Taylor. It's such a pleasure <laughs> to be here with you, and you too, Emily. So let's jump right in. Um, there are a few central questions that the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast seeks to unpack, so let's start there. 
First off, what is your own definition of anti-racist and how does anti-racism factor into your facilitation of artistry? That's a big question, Taylor. Um, you, you shared that this is what your podcast was about and um, I've been thinking about it for a few days now um, because it's something that we've been talking a lot about. I think a lot of um, American society has been talking about it and using this word. So what is anti-racist framework? Um, and I also appreciated that you uh, invited us to share our own definitions um, because there's so many different ways to go at this. Um, I think I settled on, and this is evolving of course, but right now I'm thinking anti-racism is actively pushing back on oppressive systems. So it's not enough for us to just be aware of the diversity um, of human experiences um, and conditions, um, but to actively um, push back on the oppressive systems that have created those conditions. Um, and in my experience, there's no better source of liberation than through the arts. Um, at the same time, um, the way we've realized the arts in our society um, as a system, it is so entrenched in power and privilege. So as, as someone who is a cheerleader for the arts and for artists, um, I try to create programs that are engaging to people and that lift up their vision, um, the vision that the artist has articulated. I love that, Annie. Um, I think my definition is really similar to yours, which is probably explains a lot of why we collaborate on so many projects together and are on the same page. Um, I think what you said about actively working against systems of oppression, I think also in my definition, um, I would just include um, the active storytelling of the people whose voices aren't being heard and lifting those up. And I think that in both of our work, especially at Yale China, we try to do that. Um, whether that's through bringing artists to Hong, uh, from Hong Kong to New Haven and hearing their voices here in America where they have a bigger platform or it's working here in New Haven with students at underprivileged or under-resourced uh, organizations like LEAP and other schools that we've worked with. Yeah. yeah, and I love, Emily, that um, the part of the individualism that storytelling brings out. Um, I totally agree. Um, and that is why we gel so well, isn't it? I personally, in my definition, connect with the idea of fighting actively um, oppressive forces and that idea of um, an active battle and not passivity, which I think you both touched up upon. Um, so going to the next question. Uh, does artistry have an inherent social responsibility? If so, what is that responsibility and to whom? I think that this question is really hard to answer in a very 30,000 feet up in the air kind of way that you framed the picture and the question. I think that with each artist and each artist's location, both uh, time-wise and physically, geographically, can change the way their artistry is purposed for society. Um, I guess going back to our work again, for instance, uh, a lot of 
Hong Kong artists at this moment in time, in 2020, a lot of art is being very focused on the um, protest movement. But, um, you know, maybe in like 50 years, if these protests are successful, this these artists um, are going to have a very different audience and a very different purpose with their art. So who like to whom do they have responsibility, I think, changes with the times and the location of the artist. Absolutely. Um, I completely agree with that. Uh, one of the kind of themes that I keep coming back to is this idea of inherent change um, and the importance of recognizing and adapting to change um, and, and that living as a responsible citizen in the world, not just in the U.S., um, means evolving and always learning. Um, for me, does art have an inherent social responsibility? Um, yes. Uh, art is inherently an expression and interpretation of a lived experience. Um, art is a form that is created, curated, or adapted by humans. So as a result, it is absolutely shaped by societal influences. So, so does the, um, the question for me is, does the artist comment on the world or is the artist a commentary by the world and of the, the values um, and conditions that are created around them um, that give them the values that they have as they evolve? Um, what, what I was thinking about, like, okay, that's, that sounds really idealist <laughs> or um, Emily, you call it 30,000 you know, feet up. But I was thinking about, as an example, like take theater, which often tells the stories of people of color and the disenfranchised. Is it simply enough to share these stories and create whatever empathy you can in the individuals in the audience? Um, how are we as individuals in the theater-going community taking meaningful steps, not only to recognize those differences, but then to take steps to rectify the damage that has been done from centuries ago. Um, so do we have a responsibility in the arts to address societal inequities? Absolutely. So in this forum of um, utilizing this responsibility and moving the needle forward, um, as you just talked about, Annie, both as a spectator and as an artist and facilitator, what has inspired you both um, to utilize art or the facilitation of art to address these social issues and relations? Was there a first attempt in this, an aha moment, something that led you to this work? Yeah, so I guess it, I come at this from a different, a little bit of a different perspective than Annie because she is coming, I think, more from the actual artist background and perspective because she's classically trained pianist and um, I'm coming from an education perspective. I've been doing teaching as long as I can remember um, and I'm a very visual learner and so for me the way I taught was also through visual and tactile means which normally you do things like arts and crafts so that was my kind of entrance into the arts education world and when I was in school in Mississippi 
one thing that I did as part of an organization was work with international students to go to the Mississippi Delta to under-resourced communities. And we would go and paint murals on the walls with these students and international students. And there was just a day full of painting and exchanging of cultures and the finding of common commonalities. And so for me, that was really my kind of aha moment, as you put it, Taylor, of seeing the arts being a, part, a vital part of education to bring people together, to have a better understanding of people beyond first impressions. And that's something that I've really taken to heart is that art is something that can bring people together um, to find the deeper commonalities and it, of course, educate as well. For me, um, I think I had several aha moments um, throughout my life and career, but I guess one of the, the big ones that set me on the most recent journey of, I don't know, six years or so um, was coming across um, a professor who guest taught at the Yale School of Music. His name is Sebastian Ruth. Um, and he runs, I think he works out of Providence, Rhode Island, um, and manages a nonprofit called Community Works. But he was teaching a class called Music and Civil Society. And of course, this immediately piqued my interest um, because I studied Western European um, musical canon um, as a pianist. Uh, and I, I, I just love, I love music and, you know, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, the, the three Bs, that, that was my life. Uh, uh, up until college and even in college I studied music so I've always had an interest in music and so thinking about how music could connect to civil society was not actually obvious to me um, and so I actually audited his course and that was a big aha moment for me because I never would think that music could be subversive that music could be democratic um, that music could be liberating or lead to liberation. Um, th this was all completely new to me. And um, one of the first things that we did in that class, which I recommend for anyone who's interested in thinking about this, um, is thinking about the philosophy behind civil, civil society, really, and what, what drives the civil uh, the civil this sector um, that is the nonprofit sector, right? Um, I'll leave it at that. Well, I will definitely also link um, the information to that class that you were talking about and that professor in the show notes. I think it's actually an open class. Um, so anyone can just go in and access the lectures and the reading materials. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, definitely interesting to begin to conceptualize um, the civic duty through art um, at such a formative time as um, in college and educational years. Hi, my name's Joanna Carpenter. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm a New York City-based artist, educator, and organizer. I am so thrilled to be partnering with Taylor and the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast to be bringing you a couple empathy workshops. 
We're coming up on the holidays, which means a lot of us are going to be navigating some really difficult situations and potentially really difficult conversations. I know nobody has forgotten that we are in the middle of a global pandemic and massive social and political upheaval. And that means that the holidays are going to look different this year, and they're also going to feel very different. So the point of these workshops is to really dig into the nitty gritty rawness of what empathy is, what empathy is not, and how we can harness the power of empathy and use it in tandem with our own self-care practice to navigate these conversations, to navigate the holidays, and to show up fully for ourselves, for our family, our friends, and our communities in the healthiest way possible with the greatest understanding of who we are and what we can contribute to the world around us. So mark your calendars for Thursday, December 10th at 7 p.m., or Saturday, December 19th at 3 p.m. Both of these times are Eastern Standard Time, so if you're on the West Coast or uh, in somewhere other than the United States, please plan accordingly. Uh, All of these workshops will be held on Zoom, and you can visit antiracistartist.com for tickets. Now, my favorite part of this is that a part of the ticket price is going to go to an organization of my choosing. And I have chosen to send a part of the ticket price to an organization called A Second U, the letter U, which is the nonprofit arm of a company called Unibody Fitness. The organization was founded by a man um, named Hector Guadalupe, who is uh, formerly incarcerated, and the entire program takes formerly incarcerated men and women and teaches them uh, and certifies them for personal training. It is a life-changing organization, and not just for the trainers, but for the people that the trainers work with, their clients. Um, Hector has single-handedly changed the face of uh, fitness culture in his corner of the world and is changing lives at the same time. So, I'm really, really thrilled to be hopefully doing some small part of supporting A Second You. Uh, And if you haven't uh, heard of this before, go check out Unibody Fitness on Instagram. Google A Second You. I promise you it is an inspirational story. Thanks for listening. And we will see you either on December 10th or on December 19th. Bye. All right. So now I'd like to pivot a little bit towards uh, your current work in New Haven and with Yield China. In an interview, Annie, you mentioned that one of the most important aspects of the Yale China Fellowship Program is the opportunity for the fellows to, quote, reflect on how their art relates to people, end quote. In your own reflections of building this bridge of empathy, as we've talked about, um, and perspective across cultures, what have you noticed is the impact of such experiences for both the fellows and the folks who get to view their work throughout the community? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, The Arts Fellows from Hong Kong have each made their own impact in this community. Um, And our fellowship program, which is six months long, um, is definitely rooted in site-specific frameworks. Um, Many of the fellows worked with schools, arts institutions. Uh, One worked on a farm. Um, They created public art. Um, And then we're able to take classes, audit classes, um, and extend on new areas of research um, that inform their art. I think the most impressive thing I've learned from working with them is 
as I said, as you said, how they relate to people. Um, many of their works of art are collaborative and seeing them engage people is exciting to me each year. The takeaway for me is that many of them value the process of engaging with their audience as part of their art and creation. Uh, so one fellow, for example, her name is Debbie Sham. Um, her project and actually um, artistic vision is all about this idea of play uh, and how much we lose play in adulthood. Um, mm -hmm. So some of her work um, is around this idea of discovery um, and, uh, and, and knowledge gaining um, and doing that through these fun social interactions that are inspired by the playground. Um, so one of her, um, her pieces is um, she's got two chairs kind of facing each other and the backs of the chairs are connected almost like monkey bars. Um, and she has several of these sculptures in her um, exhibit, uh, which have, have, I think they've also been placed in just open green spaces. So definitely have um, a playful interactive feel to it. Um, and people can come and discover each other, complete strangers or just get to know each other in this kind of context, um, which I think is so um, indicative of the, the way art can be done uh, in Hong Kong. It's playful, it's interactive, it's immersive, it's site-specific, um, all, all those wonderful things that art can be. Um, w the last thing I'll say about that is um, I really, and, and this is something I hear a lot in other residency programs uh, like our fellowship program, which is this idea of valuing process over product. Um, and for many of these artists um, that we've had come over from Hong Kong, um, in part because it's their value, is they, they want to work alongside their very audiences as collaborators. Um, and so they bring them into the process and that in and of itself is part of their artistic creation. And Emily, um, to kind of shape this question a little bit further, how do you, as someone who works both in education and in the arts uh, portions of Yale China, um, how do you take this work that is created in this amazing collaboration that Annie was just describing um, and begin to measure it, which is so hard to do with the arts, with anything in the arts, but how do you begin to measure that impact, um, the success of those programs, um, whether it is through teaching programs such as with LEAP or um, more of the in-community um, installations, like at the Ely Center where um, there was an exhibit from one of your fellows this spring. How do you begin to conceptualize measuring the impact? Um, so I won't speak to the Arts Fellows. Maybe Annie can speak to the Arts Fellows impact a little bit more. Um, I've only had gotten to know a few of the Arts Fellows during their fellowships. Um, but I can speak to the impact that the cross-pollination of arts and education has had on our Chinese teaching fellows. And so these are teachers, they're already professional teachers who come from Hong Kong and China to teach in New Haven public schools for one year. And their goal is to teach Chinese language and culture, um, which is a very broad goal. But the way they go about it is they combine their own Chinese pedagogy with American pedagogy. And a huge part of that is project-based learning, right? That's a huge 
huge term here in America in the classrooms, and it's becoming more and more popular as we realize that students learn better when they're able to explore on their own and they're not just being forced to do rote memorization. And so that's a complete 180 for a lot of our Chinese teachers that are coming here. And they are so, so intrigued by this idea of learning in a way that's not learning for a test. And so they experiment a lot with that while they're here. And part of what I do is help them create many projects so that they can do that instead of, you know, doing a week long project. Because when they get back to their classrooms in China, they don't have the freedom to do a week long project, but they could do a mini project based learning lesson within one hour. And a lot of what those projects end up being are art projects that integrate Chinese culture into their classrooms. And then the impressions that we get is, or the impact that we can measure is, we see those teachers go back to their classrooms in China. They integrate those practices into their Chinese classrooms. Their students are able to learn better there. And then we also see students here in New Haven being excited about something that they've never experienced before. And so that's how I would measure the impact in the cross-pollination right there. Um, can't speak as much to the arts fellows. Maybe Annie, you can speak more to that impact. Um, I think it's, it's hard to measure, <laughs> which is not the right answer, but it's hard to measure um, the impact made on an individual's life. Um, you, Taylor, you read our mission statement, and one of the key words in our mission statement is this idea of a transformational experience. Um, I think one of our most important um, you know, sort of public goods that we put out in the world is that these um, members of society, leaders in their fields, um, movers and shakers, um, and people who um, can reflect back to the world things that are happening in that very moment, like artists, um, they experience another culture and learn what it means to see the same thing from a different point of view, and that is a transformative experience. Um, I think it, for a lot of people who have spent um, a significant amount of time in another culture, um, you get a taste of it as a tourist uh, visiting another place, um, but uh, living in another place gives you a little bit of that, um, that sense. Uh, so I, I think, especially in the arts, we're a little bit um, younger. We've only been doing this program for about five or six years. Um, I think we're, we're on to our sixth cycle right now um, of fellows. Um, but we do have 13 um, incredible alumni artists um, who are making a difference in Hong Kong right now and, and elsewhere. Um, so I think, you know, right now what we have is stories and, and qualitative data, um, but we're, we're hoping if our mission is true that there's going to be, um, you know, these ties and this social capital that we're putting together um, is, is kind of the product that we're putting out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can also characterize a little bit um, the relationship between the Arts Fellows and uh, the New Haven residents and the community that um, is encompassed by that. How the interaction, how you viewed the interaction between, um, for instance, um, Lunar Fest, well, that's not with the Arts Fellows, of course, but Lunar Fest, a uh, more community-driven um, program in New Haven, 
and the greater New Haven community, or like I mentioned at the Ely Center, that installation um, and the conversation that had with um, other New Haveners. I think this um, fellowship is about understanding um, a culture from another perspective. Um, and the way to do that is not simply by going to museums or walking around on the streets, um, but to actually get to know the people. Um, and the way we tend to work at Yale China is uh, through partners and partnerships. Uh, so we work with schools, we work with a network of organizations, uh, including uh, arts institutions like the Long Wharf Theater, uh, the International Festival of Arts and Ideas, the Ar Arts Council of Greater New Haven, the list goes on. Uh, you mentioned the Ely Center, of course, they've been so supportive of us. Um, it's, I think, a mutual exchange uh, and learning from each other. Um, we, we say, we, we, I actually try not to use the word residency to describe this because a lot of residencies imply that there's some sort of creation or product. Um, and we call it a fellowship because it's really more about um, the experiences you have with other peers um, and hence the fellowship, this idea of being associated with another network um, and that those relationships are critical to um, to grassroots um, kind of peacemaking. We are going to take a very short break and we'll be right back with Annie Lynn and Emily Chu. Would you like a free ticket to our Navigating Difficult Conversations workshop led by the one and only Joanna Carpenter? Would you like to support the work that we are doing of championing an equitable, inclusive, anti-racist future through the arts? I want to invite you to join us on this journey with exclusive access and content allowing you to dive deeper into this arena with us. We have launched a Patreon account and welcome your support for the work we are creating. There are myriad perks available for us to thank you for your support, ranging from early access to episodes without ads, to free tickets to all anti-racist artist workshops, including navigating difficult conversations on December 10th and 19th, all the way up to credit as an associate producer of the show. Your support goes towards making donations to organizations on behalf of our guest artists, maintaining our podcast sites and services, and compensating folks for their work to make this podcasting community possible. This podcast and the work around it is supported by the generosity of folks like you, and we want to thank you for that. You can find more information and join us at patreon.com slash artist. And we are back with Annie Lynn and Emily Chu. Going into the final section of our interview today, I want to go into the idea and question of where do we go from here? We are still in the midst of a global pandemic, and with COVID-19, a major side effect has been overt racism towards Chinese persons. This condition became very apparent around the time of Lunar Fest this year, when there was reduced attendance due to fear surrounding the virus. It was also measured by lack of attendance and programming that I was producing, leading up to a production of The Chinese Lady, in which folks from the Chinese community in New Haven expressed trepidation in attending public gatherings due to the xenophobia and racism stirring. These experiences were in February and March, and I'm wondering how the continued life of the pandemic has aroused racist sentiment and how art, or the formation of these empathy bridges that we've been talking about, has or may continue to play a role in dispelling sentiments such as these. I think that what we're actually seeing with the uptick in reported racism against Asians because of COVID-19 is actually 
um, just one facet of a broader phenomenon we're seeing that it that COVID-19 is exposing a lot of the systemic problems we have here in America, including um, for healthcare, for people of color, um, rampant racism against uh, many BIPOC populations. So I think that we're seeing an uptick, what, would, what many would consider an uptick in racial tensions against Asian Americans. And I think that it's, there, there is certainly an uptick, but it, it's not. It's not that these tensions came out of nowhere. Um, I'm sure Annie can speak to this if she's willing. But Asian Americans experience microaggressions and sometimes macroaggressions every day in this country, and they're not reported in the news like um, other acts of racism are. And as a result, many people um, thought that this racism against Asians was stemming solely from COVID. And that's just not the case. Uh, this racism has been present since the inception of this country and was particularly present in the 1800s with things like the Chinese Exclusion Act and in the 1900s with um, executive order um, that forced all uh, Japanese Americans, including American citizens, into prison camps. So. Um, I think what we're seeing is not an uptick in racism, but rather an uptick in the reporting of racism against Asians. And I think that this uptick in reporting will lead to what I hope is more awareness that these things are happening and will bring hopefully change, um, but it's unsure. And I think that a lot of people are using art in this time of protest, especially in times when you can't always leave your home to voice their opinions. Um, like a lot of people will put signs on their windows. Maybe they have someone at home. They can't go to a protest because they might endanger a family member or endanger their own health. And so art has become crucial to people voicing their opinions in these times when there are a lot of things that are being exposed that have been underlying problems for a very long time. And I hope that people will continue to use art in this way to voice their opinions and it will give people a platform that maybe wouldn't have a platform otherwise. Thanks, Emily. I really couldn't have said that better than, than how you just said it. Um, yeah, Taylor, it's a great question. Um, I think what I would like to share now is um, what Yale China is doing here. I think Yale China as an organization invested in bridging uh, Chinese and American people and culture um, is uniquely positioned to do is actually um, this very uh, issue, addressing this very issue. So. Um, in the last few months, um, you know, Emily and I talk about this um, practically on a daily basis, but we've been sharing with the staff uh, and some of our trustees and advisors a longing to uh, support the local Asian and Asian American communities, um, especially because of um, what Emily started to allude to, which is that 
a lot is going unreported, but it doesn't mean that they're not experiencing um, discrimination or heightened anxiety or even worse, um, hate crimes, micro macro aggressions, etc. Um, so Yale China is working on creating a bilingual toolbox um, for mental wellness. So I'm just kind of informally calling it an a mental wellness initiative, which is not something we have really spent much time on, and certainly not in New Haven. Um, but we are registered in Connecticut. We are a member of this New Haven community, and it is really important for us to be supportive of our local community here. And so part of um, what's really exciting about this mental wellness initiative is that it's being led by artists. Um, so we have um, dancers, um, our arts alumni, uh, dancer choreographers leading um, bilingual or even trilingual sessions on uh, breathing techniques and um, thinking about posture throughout the day, um, mindfulness trainings. Um, we are reaching out to uh, the Yale University Art Gallery. They have a mindfulness series that they do uh, paired with a work of art um, that we want to work with them on with their extensive Asian art collection, um, taking a look at a, um, a piece of art um, and maybe indirectly addressing some of these um, internal struggles that may not be comfortable talking about, uh, talked about. Um, we're also um, hoping to work with the theater on storytelling as a healing um, practice. Um, so there, there's a lot of stu studies that document um, that telling your story, um, gaining control over things that have happened to you um, will actually um, produce um, confidence and uh, resolution to that you know, kind of trauma or challenge or pain. Um, so, and there's a lot of researchers uh, over at Yale, um, the Yale School of Nursing, School of Medicine, Public Health, um, who actually specialize in this very um, area. Um, and I think the arts are really um, such a great medium for um, teasing um, that part out in people um, so that they can heal and so that they can reach a level of understanding where they can move on with their lives, um, understanding what's going around, uh, going on around them, excuse me. Um, so we, we're venturing into something that's very, um, th that's tough for me personally, because I deal with this on a regular basis with my own family, having difficult conversations um, with different generations and also thinking about um, as a new newish mother, um, you know, how to raise my, my two young daughters um, in an empathetic way um, and hoping that they can understand the society around them and how to put out, um, how to put out better, betterness in the world, better good. <laughs> um, but thank you for, for calling this out and drawing attention to it, Taylor, um, because it's, um, it affects me, it affects my family, and I have no doubt it affects this silent majority, uh, silent min minority um, of Asians in the New Haven area and elsewhere. Um, and we're, we're hoping we can make a, a small difference here. Thank you both for being so um, willing to share what I'm certain is, um, and what you 
acknowledges an emotional and personal aspect. Um, and I, I'd just like to resonate with something that each of you said, Emily bringing the broader context of how this has a historical place in the lineage of American history from 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was signed, then of course 10 years later it was reupheld and had a long-lasting history through multiple um, other times such as um, other pandemics and epidemics where similar racism was attached to it um, to now where we are today, right? It's not an isolated incident. And then to what you mentioned, Annie, of allowing art to become a healing space um, to meet to meet this lineage of oppression, of violence, um, of racism, and to find ways. Um, and I'm so excited to hear of the, men the mental wellness toolkit that um, Yale China is creating. And if it's okay, I will gladly link um, in the show notes so people can find um, that work that you're doing. Um, so I, I want to say thank you for um, sharing so, uh, so kindly with us those remarks. We will jump right back in the conversation in just a moment. I am excited to invite you to join the conversation with us on Instagram and Facebook. We are posting sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, some powerful quotes, and announcing workshop and engagement opportunities specifically for this community. We are on Instagram at antiracistartist and on facebook.com slash AAP community. We look forward to having you join the conversation. We are at the end of our time in this conversation, uh, but before we go, um, each episode we invite our guests to choose an organization to uplift, one that is creating a meaningful impact towards a more equitable, inclusive, accessible, and anti-racist future. Annie and Emily have chosen a terrific organization lo located in New Haven called the New Haven Pride Center. Dating back to 1993, the New Haven Pride Center provides educational, cultural, and social enrichment for the LGBTQ community, its allies, and members to make a positive contribution to the entire community of the greater New Haven. The Pride Center and its community of folks have a special place in my heart, and I would love to hear why you two chose this organization to uplift. I think the New Haven Pride Center, God, if there was a New Haven Pride Center where I was growing up, ugh, things would be so different. The New Haven Pride Center just promotes so much um, positivity in the world, um, led by a truly inspirational visionary, Patrick Dunn. Um, I just want more of it in the world. Just more, more, more. So on behalf of our guests today, the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast has made a donation to the center. You can donate as well and learn more about their work at newhavenpridecenter.org, on Instagram at New Haven Pride Center, and on Facebook. Before we go, are there any other projects, organizations, or people that you'd like to highlight as leaders to follow in this work? I would like to highlight Theater Moo, um, which is a theater dedicated to telling the stories of Asians and Asian Americans, um, and also written by Asian American artists, uh, produced by Asian American artists, and for anyone who would like to enjoy these incredible stories and voices. 
um, support projects that do anti-racist work and vote with your dollars. Um, as a nonprofit professional, I can say nothing speaks louder than money. So vote with your dollars. Emily? Shout out to Lauren Yee. Uh, she's a great playwright. Um, she's done a really great job of representing um, mostly Chinese American stories, but she's also in her latest play delved into the Cambodian American experience. I think it's really unique that she, despite being a Chinese American, has taken it upon herself to help represent parts of the Asian community that are underrepresented. And I really applaud that. And I also applaud her research because it was a very historically accurate play. And I know that took a lot of work. So being able to not only tell that story that isn't often told, but to be able to do it well, even though it's not her story, uh, is really unique. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure, both personally and to hear your stories for the podcast be told. Um, it is with so much gratitude um, that I thank you for joining me. The Anti-Racist Artist Podcast is hosted by Taylor Ibarra, produced by Subido Political Productions, LLC, and edited by Andrew Alcarez. To stay connected with the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast, please visit us at antiracistartist.com, on Instagram at antiracistartist, or via email at antiracistartist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our podcast is made possible with the support of folks like you. You can get exclusive content and access to the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash antiracistartist. This episode's donation was made possible in part by the generosity of Rachel Politsky. Theme music features vocals by Esteban Suero, Forrest Van Dyke, Kennedy Kanagawa, Jameson, Minji Kim. Ah.